Mark chapter 1 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 14. I'm going to read it to open us up, and then uh, we'll dive in. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I love when I'm reading through the Bible, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but I often find uh, passages that at first glance seem like they don't really go together, stories that don't really go together, but then I eventually discover connections that I didn't see at first. And it usually only happens when I'm kind of forced to look at it. Often that looks like I open up the, uh, the revised common lectionary readings for the week, the, the ecumenical global interchurch just arrangement of, of scripture readings that there's one every Sunday and it, over the course of three years hits everything in the Bible, helps us preachers make sure we're not skipping passages and things like that. I'll open it up and I'll read the passage and I'll think, man, It really doesn't seem like these stories go together. Or I'll read the Old Testament passage for the week and the New Testament, and sometimes it's really obvious they're using the same words, and sometimes they just seem completely different. But as I begin to study, I, I see things I didn't see before. I see connections that I didn't see before. Another thing that can happen to us is we can read through the Bible, we can read through especially the New Testament, and uh, as you read through, we see these little section headings, right? You probably, you guys all have those in your Bible? I know that you all have them in your Bible. I've never seen a Bible without them. That was a <laughs> test question, right? And so our, our reading today, I have a section heading, Jesus Begins His Ministry. Does anybody have anything different on that? No, we all agree. Okay. And then uh, just a couple of verses down, I have Jesus calls the first disciples. We have these section headings. Now, just a, a reminder, or if you didn't know this for the first time, those section headings are not in the original text. In, in the same way as the chapters and verses are not in the original text. If you go back to the Greek, there's not little numbers all the way through the Bible. The chapters, the verse numbers, and the section headings are added in our Bibles just as a way of organizing them, as a way to find the same passage at the same time, right? Because our Bibles all have different number of pages and size. There's no other way for us to find the same verses. But those were all added 
after the fact. And so just because something is in chapter 1 of Mark versus chapter 2 doesn't mean that Mark decided this is my first idea, this is my second idea, and the third. And the same with the verses. Just because something happens in two different verses doesn't mean it's the same thought. And the section headings are great because it makes it easy to find stories. If I'm trying to find, uh, for instance, the story in the New Testament where Mary visits Elizabeth, Rather than read through every word on every page, I can look for the section heading that brings me to that story. And for the most part, those section headings do that well. And for the most part, I haven't uh, had much of an issue with them. But it's just a good reminder. And I have to remind myself of this, that section headings are not scripture. And so if they seem to interpret a passage in any way, that's not scripture. And they don't. The, the stories are not necessarily meant to be separated the way the headings separate them, which I ran into that this week as I read this passage and prepared for this message. I began to think about it. Well, we have this one story about what happens with John, and then we have this second story about Jesus calling his first disciples. But as I, as I just saturated in this passage this week and, and sat in it and prayed about it and thought about it, I realized that there is this incredibly important common theme between these two passages. That there's actually, it's almost telling the same story in two different ways. Now there's lots of things in every biblical passage and there's multiple stories in every biblical passage but i found one kind of underlying theme in these that i believe is what god wants to speak to us about today so the first the first section of this the first individual story we have uh, or at least the first circumstance is that of john the baptist So Mark opens his gospel talking about John the Baptist and how he came to prepare the way for Jesus. He gives us a little bit of information about the temptation of Jesus and then Jesus begins his ministry. The heading is accurate in this case. So John is arrested. He's a man who speaks truth. He does it brashly. He doesn't pull punches. He says what's on his mind. Do you know anybody who who's like that, that they are just always honest. They say the honest things even when sometimes they shouldn't. You know anybody like that? You've all met me. (laughs) So the answer is yes. He's that kind of guy. And because of that, he goes before Herod the king in what is a very risky and probably unadvisable plan to call the king who is one of the most ruthless rulers the world has seen. And he goes before him and just calls him out on his sin and his his adultery publicly. Now, heck, most of us know that you don't call somebody else out on something publicly. You don't do it in front of other people. You definitely know that you don't call your boss out on something in front of other employees, Right? Even if your boss is wrong, even if there's something you need to tell, you don't do it in front of other people. And John just kind of marches in to Herod's court and goes after him. So John, not surprisingly, gets arrested. Of course, he never gets out of jail. He has some correspondence and contact. But the end of the story that we we learn about elsewhere is that he's eventually killed. He 
never makes it out of prison. He never continues the ministry that he was in before. This is the end for John. And then the second story, we have a story about two sets of brothers who are fishermen. Uh, One set is probably a little bit less well-off financially because they are um, fishing by themselves. At least that's what it makes it sound like. And then the other is James and John, the son of Zebedee, and they leave their father with the hired hands. So they had a large enough vessel that they had they had people working for them. They were more of a more of a corporation. Not that they had those, but bigger business. But two sets of brothers, and they've they're fishermen. They've been fishermen all their life, and it's more obvious with with James and John because they're fishing with their father. So we know that they grew up on the boat, right? Their entire life has been learning how to fish and successfully run a a fishing business and and manage and. Everything that's involved in that, that's what they are setting up for. Also, it's the way that they will care for their parents, right? Zebedee has this business and he teaches and trains his sons. And if he does that well enough that they will continue to have a successful business and they can care for Zebedee and his wife as they get older and eventually can't get out on the fishing boat anymore. And Jesus calls these four young men to follow him and they leave their nets leave their nets behind and they follow we uh we had a a meeting and workshop yesterday for all of our children's workers and anybody who was interested in coming there's a little bit of uh, information, but we just spent a, really spent a lot of time in prayer and seeking and discerning what God has for our children's ministry. And one of the things I shared with our children's ministers that I share with, with anyone who's involved at our church and um, something that I believe firmly that I, I don't believe in putting people in ministry and volunteer spaces just to fill holes. That we have a list of responsibilities at our church and things that need to get done, but I am incredibly, incredibly hesitant to ask someone that they're to do something that they're not called to do. Now there are some things that are we just they have to happen. Right? There, there are certain things that just have to happen for us to operate. There are exceptions to that. But for the most part, I would rather not have a certain Sunday school class than try to force somebody to do that and do what they're not called to do, do something they're not gifted in. I would much rather empower people to do what they're gifted in and called to and do it incredibly well. First of all, because I think that that makes up the difference. They do things, we do things so much better when we're called and equipped for them that it, it, it fills any gaps that are left. But, but also, that's just, I don't believe that that's what God calls us to do. I believe that we should do the things that we are called to. And so if there is an opening, whether it's children's ministry, youth ministry, worship, preaching, whatever, we will wait until there's someone called to fill that position. And I'm never going to just stand up here and say that, you know, I'm not preaching until somebody volunteers to do this or, 
or give some guilt trip to tell you how important it is and you should do the thing that God's not calling you to do. I know better than to do that. It doesn't work out well. It burns people out. They're less effective. But there's a caveat to that. And I talked with this yesterday with our children's workers, and we're talking about it this morning. There's, there's another side to that. There's a clarifying statement. I will almost never ask you to do something that you are not called to do. But that doesn't mean that I won't ask you to do something that makes you uncomfortable. And to me, those are two different things. Because here's what we see in this passage. This entire passage, the underlying theme of this passage, there's lots of, there's, there's a million things. I have a, a, another favorite sermon about being fishers of men and what that means for us to, as a church in our, you know, what type of fish are we going after? But the underlying theme here is we have all of these people that were doing one thing and now they're being called to something else. You see, we talk a lot in church about how we're called out of our sin. That's a common theme. It's a common discussion, right? We were sinners, but then the grace of God saves us, forgives us, and we're pulled out of our sin. God calls us out of this lifestyle and into this one. He calls us out of darkness and into light. He calls us out about that alone pursuit. Or this way, that can end people out of time, calling people out of good things to better things. Now, some of the disciples, a job that just by its very nature involved extortion and, and throwing widows out of their homes and onto the street and just Matthew, the tax collector, needed to repent and become a disciple. And we read throughout scripture that, that even saviors evil and to repent for their friends, good work. Peter and James was a preacher. He was an evangelist. He was, he was, actually, but you get it. He, he had a powerful ministry. But if Jesus came and God said, all right, John, it's, this is the end of the road. Now, in, in the way our mind works, especially those of us who have, who have grown up in corporate America would say, man, if you do your job well, if you're, if you're the top of the class, if, you are, if you're just killing it, and John was killing it, I mean, everyone was coming to listen to John. God was amazing at what he did. You deserve a promotion. You've earned that, right? By all accounts, John the Baptist should have been a disciple. He was the most qualified. There were already all these people following him. And many of them left him and ended up following Jesus, but it would have worked a whole lot better if he had just been brought in as one of the, I mean, didn't he earn a spot as one of the disciples? And, you know, Jesus, I get that you want to bring some tax collectors in to prove a point, but good grief, how many fishermen do we need? We could give up one of them to bring in John the Baptist. He earned that spot. And God says, no, I think you're going to go to prison and get beheaded. That's what's next for you. Sometimes God calls us out of something great 
to something that is just different and by our standards worse. But it's not about us. And John knew it wasn't about him. He says elsewhere, he must become greater, I must become less. It was all about the building of the kingdom. And so when we follow, when we follow God, and especially as we are involved in the building of his kingdom, which every single one of us should be, there's this common theme of change that our responsibilities, our roles, our positions, it will shift and often in ways that do not make us comfortable. But there's a difference between being called and being comfortable. I, uh, when I went to college, First year I went to college, I, uh, I was a music major and I was preparing to study recording technology. I planned to go work in a recording studio for the rest of my life or maybe you know run sound at big events, things like that. I loved, I loved doing that sort of thing. I, uh, we had a farm and lots of room in the barn and I took a couple rooms in the barn and I actually built a recording studio for our band when I was in high school. And um, I loved doing that. That's what I went to school for for a year. After that, I changed my major to business. I transferred from Eastern Nazarene in Massachusetts out to Olivet in Illinois, which is where I met my lovely wife. Thanks for the smile. I, uh, I ended up with a degree in marketing with an emphasis in management. And I was always really involved in church. My whole life, my parents were, were youth leaders when I was a kid, and we were always helping out at church. And and I would, I would say all the time, I don't know why I would say it, I don't know what prompted it, but I said all the time, I'm a business major because I'm called to be a professional tither for the rest of my life. And, uh, and the plan was to go into sales, possibly management, and just, I mean, John Wesley said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And that's what I was going to do. That was, my, that, w- that was my calling, volunteer at church, help out, do this, whatever. That was my plan. That's what I was comfortable with. And at the time, that's as far as I could tell what I was called to. Now, I wouldn't say that I was running from a call to ministry. Some people say that. I, unless I really was oblivious to it, there was no call in my life that I just shut down and said no to and said, no, I'm going to run. I'm going to run from God. That was what God called me to first. And it was after I graduated I won't tell you the whole story this morning, but after I graduated that I was called to go back to school and, and study ministry in a graduate program. And I didn't know why. I, and people would ask me, why are you doing this? And I would say, well, maybe I'm going to be a youth pastor. Um, I'd, we've you know, got a small youth group at my church. I'd love to be you know, in leadership more, but I'm not quite qualified yet. Or, or maybe I'll go work at a nonprofit and really you know, do a business job and in a religious kind of setting or or... Or, I don't know, maybe I'll just be a really well-equipped lay person to help out wherever I... I don't know. I said, I know I'm not called for senior pastoral ministry. That's, that's definitely out. Because um, I'm not... I, I would be terrible at it. And, uh, but anything else is... I, I don't know. God might 
called me to, and he's, but he's definitely not called me to senior pastoral ministry. That's just not who I am. It's not what he's equipped me for. It's, it's not it. And again, I don't think I was violently opposed to it. I just genuinely saw no possible way that I could be a senior pastor and do it well. And then uh, I eventually took a class with a very wise, very compassionate pastor. It was called Pastoral Care and Counseling. And I saw the way that he cared for his people. I saw the way he spoke of the people that had been in his church and how much love and care he had for them. And after taking that class and seeing what it meant for him to be a pastor, I said, uh, okay, well, maybe. Maybe I could do that. Of course, the first thing I got approached for, somebody asked me to pray about, was a senior pastoral position. I started doing that when I was 25 years old, and that's the only thing I have done for the past 10, almost 11 years. 10 years. I wasn't comfortable with it. This wasn't what I had in mind in my life. But it's what I was called to, and it was what I was equipped for. And I I look back, and every step of the way, things that I learned have been helpful in ministry. I I use my business degree all the time as a pastor in positive ways, not because we want to run our church like a business, but because there's certain things that are very applicable and are very helpful in a church environment. All of that was God preparing me for my calling. And the more I've done this, the more I've stepped into it and embraced it, the more passionate I am about it. And I wasn't comfortable with it at first, but it's what I was called to. In the same way that the disciples were fishermen, they hung out with the same four or five or six people every day on a little boat. And did the same thing, the same routine. It was a physical job. It was out on the water. They knew what they were doing. And Jesus said, follow me. We're going to go wander around and just be with new people every day. You realize that the disciples on the boats were probably introverts, right? Like they had a, thank you. (laughs) I was waiting for it. They chose a career. They were brought up in a career where they just stayed by themselves on a boat in the middle of a lake. By our modern language and understanding, we would call them, they probably were what we would describe as introverts. And Jesus said, hey, let's go meet hundreds and thousands of new people every day. And they're all going to come up and try to talk to you to find out about me. There's no way they were comfortable with that. But they recognized that God was calling them and they recognized that it would be okay. We all, we all at least to some degree want to see revival sparked in our nation. We all have broken people that we want to see find the love and grace and power of God in their lives to bring healing. We want to see our church grow so that we can do more to help people. We want to see those people's lives be changed. But I think we also really need to look at ourselves 
and consider what that means. Because when churches grow, when churches grow, what we do and who we are in those churches changes. And when we're in a smaller church environment, and I grew up in small churches, it's really easy to be the person that does this. It's really easy to be the person that is the go-to when something breaks. It's really easy to be the person that's the go-to when, when there's this need. But if more start, people start coming in, there may be people that are better at your thing than you are. Keith's excited because I made him crawl around in the attic in the insulation. He's, he's very okay with a better electrician. But there might be somebody who's better at your thing than you are. Or maybe there's somebody, even worse, maybe there's somebody that's worse at your thing than you are, but God calls them to step into it and you to step out because that's what is right. And you're going to have to sit back and watch somebody do your thing, but not up to your standards. Maybe you've been the this person for 25 years. This is one thing that I've seen kill growth at churches. Churches start to grow. People start having to let go of the things that make them feel comfortable in church and they push back against it. And they might not even know that they're doing it. But the things that make them comfortable, the identities that make them comfortable are threatened. So we need to make decisions now before it happens of how we're going to handle that. And this is for all of us. Because eventually, 90% of what I do, I could be worked out of. And I need to be ready for that as well. That we can grow and we hire a a full-time staff member that ends up being a lot better at some of the things that I really like doing. And I need to be ready for that. God calls us out of so much more than just what is evil in our lives. But he always calls us into his kingdom. He always calls us into his presence, into his goodness. And by worldly standards like with John, sometimes it looks like we're being demoted. But there was nothing greater for John than to see the Messiah come. Everything about his ministry was to prepare the way. And John was able to sit in that prison cell, hear the stories coming in, and know that he prepared the way well. That the road that he paved leading to Jesus was solid, secure, and smooth, and people were coming by the thousands into the presence of Jesus. And he had that assurance and he got to sit back and not with his eyes, but with his ears and with his heart, watch that happen. 
Being uncomfortable doesn't have to be miserable. Being uncomfortable doesn't have to be miserable. It might be a little painful. It might be hard. It'll definitely be hard. But it'll be good. It'll be good. So make this choice. Pray about it. Examine your heart. And I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe some of you are going to get to keep doing the same thing forever. I don't know. But I know when God begins to move, things begin to change. And we need to be ready for that. And willing to let things go. And, and realize that it doesn't mean they're bad. God can call us to stop doing certain things. And it doesn't mean those things were bad or wrong or useless. Different is okay. Different is okay. Let's pray. Father, we are... Uh, God, I'm so grateful that you do new things in my life. And God, in, in nothing in my life do I want to be so stuck on something that I know I can function at that I miss something better. I don't want to be so afraid of letting go of what makes me feel safe and secure and comfortable that, that I miss something better that you have for me or worse, that I miss something that you're calling me to do. I don't want to work in an area where I am comfortable but ineffective because you've moved on because you're working somewhere else and i'm still doing my favorite job at a work site that's no longer active because you're digging somewhere else so god may we be a church that in all things follows you a church that's willing to allow you to shape our identities both in our, our families and in the world but in your church of who we are and what we do let us be focused on the building of your kingdom, Lord, in all things. Your plan, your work, your kingdom. And we're reminded, Jesus, that <laughs> you're not asking us to do anything you didn't do because you left heaven to come to earth. You left the throne of God to come here and and get sunburns and bruises and cuts and experience loss and, and everything that comes with it. And if you could step out of that for us, Lord, we can step out of a whole lot for you. Give us the power and the strength to do that. We, as your church, are open to your movement and leading in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.